0: Chapter 4, Part 20 of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume 10. Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the Second Star Route Trial. Part 20 of 24. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org read by michelle fry baton Rouge, louisiana in december two thousand eighteen that is the state of the case on these three routes and yet it is solemnly averred in the indictment that all the orders on these routes were made for the joint benefit of john w dorsey and others now before another payment was made the division of the routes had been completed and john w dorsey sold out his interest in these routes and all others for ten thousand dollars so that he never received a dollar upon the bismarck route and the vermilion route except as it is included in the gross sum of ten thousand dollars which he received for his entire interest and that entire interest is described perfectly in the contract of august sixteenth eighteen seventy eight now if john w dorsey had no interest in any route except as stated in the contract of course nothing was done upon any other route for his benefit nothing was done in which he by any possibility had the slightest pecuniary interest how were the petitions filed for his benefit how were the affidavits made for his benefit how were the orders made for his benefit he had no interest he had parted with it and had nothing more to do with it than the attorneys for the prosecution in this case it is claimed by mr bliss that when john w dorsey sold out he agreed to make the necessary papers for the routes and he tried to impress upon the mines the idea that the bargain was that john w dorsey knew that for ten thousand dollars he had to commit perjury and forgery and several other cheerful crimes from time to time as he might be called upon by the gentlemen who had been his co-conspirators j w dorsey frankly and cheerfully swore that he agreed to make the necessary papers he did not swear that he agreed to commit any frauds perjuries or forgeries nothing of the kind he agreed to execute of course the necessary legal papers the papers that as contractor were necessary for him to make to vest title of the route in the person to whom he had sold just the necessary papers that would allow the man who had paid him for the route to draw the money from the government if he performed the service. Now, what were the papers? I say right here, gentlemen, that under the law as it was then, under the law as it is now, it is impossible for a contractor to assign his contract so as to be relieved from responsibility to the government. The government will not permit it. The government will permit him to make a subcontract, and that is what John W. Dorsey did. That is one of the things he agreed to do. In order to make that subcontract absolutely certain, in order to put it beyond his power to do anything with it, that subcontract was made for the entire pay, for the entire increase and expedition. And what more? in order to make that absolutely perfect so they would not have a loophole anywhere he signed blank drafts upon the post office department for the entire pay of every quarter during the contract term and then if they were fined and nobody knew how much they would be fined they had the right to fill up that order for the amount due them from the post office department after deducting fines he sold out in march 1879 the regulation or order making it necessary for the contractor to make an oath as to additional stock and men was not in existence was not a binding law or regulation until the first day of july 1879 when he sold out in march unless he were gifted with prophecy he would not know what the regulation of the first of july following would be now, there were two affidavits made by John W. Dorsey on Route Thirty Eight One Thirty Four Pueblo to Rosita. Around those affidavits, Mr. Bliss hovered, and Mr. Kerr remained. John W. Dorsey testifies that he received one of those affidavits in the morning and swore to it, and that it was filled up when he swore to it. Mr. Bliss and Mr. Kerr, I believe, both say that it was not filled up quoting mr bliss where does mr darcy say that it was filled up when he swore to it mr ingersoll i have not the page here but i will give it to you he swore that a dozen times that he never swore to any blank affidavits mr bliss i undertake to say that it cannot be found in his evidence the court he testified that he received them both by mail and that the second one was contained in a letter which said that there was an error in the first and the second was sent for the purpose of correcting that error. Mr. Ingersoll, there could not have been any error in the first unless it had been filled up. You cannot make an error in blank. On page 4838, Mr. Ruardale swore that he left this city on the 17th or 18th of April for the West, and then he adds, I think on the 18th, then the government brought the hotel keepers from sydney nebraska and from denver and from some other place nearly as many witnesses as you had about the paper pulp and they proved that rodell was beyond the missouri river on the twenty-first of april now see what mr bliss says on page forty nine fourteen and yet gentlemen it is beyond dispute that as early as the fifteenth of april eighteen seventy nine mr rodell had left this city and gone west "'Why did he have it stated on the 15th, gentlemen?' "'I will tell you.' "'Oh, I tell you, the human mind is a queer thing when it gets to working. John W. Dorsey was in Middlebury, Vermont. If a letter had been sent from here on the 15th, it certainly would have got up there before the 21st. So they wanted Riddell out of this town as early as possible, so that it would make it highly improbable.' that it would take a letter from that time to the twenty-first to get to middlebury now the evidence is that he left here he thinks on the eighteenth when did that letter get up there i think the twentieth or the twenty-first mr davidge there was a sunday intervened mr ingersoll they say gentlemen that there is no evidence that the blanks were filled and yet john w dorsey swears that he received a letter stating that the first affidavit was erroneous AND THE SECOND ONE WAS SENT TO HIM TO CORRECT IT. HOW WOULD YOU CORRECT ONE AFFIDAVIT IN BLANK BY ANOTHER AFFIDAVIT IN BLANK? HOW DID HE EVER GET THOSE AFFIDAVITS? I WILL TELL YOU. WE WILL HAVE THAT LITTLE MATTER SETTLED. HERE IS WHAT Rodell SWEARS ON PAGE 2232. QUESTION. WHEN DID YOU RETURN FROM THAT VISIT? ANSWER. I RETURNED ABOUT THE FIFTH OF MAY. Question: State whether or not, after you returned, you found blank affidavits among the papers connected with the business? Answer. Yes, sir. Q. How many did you find? Answer. Well, there were several blank affidavits of John W. Dorsey's and several of John M. Peck's. I don't know how many there were. Q. Were they blank affidavits? Answer. Well, sir, they were blank affidavits similar to that one i sent leaving out the number of men and animals in each case question did they purport to have been sworn to answer yes sir question were those affidavits among the papers when you left here to go west answer some of them were i think those of pecks were here probably four or five or half a dozen and i had made out before i left here a lot of them and sent them to john w dorsey in the meantime when i returned here john w dorsey was here mr verdale swears that just before he went away he sent the affidavits to john w dorsey and the only question between them is were they in blank or were they filled john w dorsey swears that they were filled because when he received the second he received a letter stating that there was an error in the first and that error had been corrected in the second the last nail in the coffin of that doctrine mr ingersoll resuming may it please the court and gentlemen of the jury before finishing what i am about to say in regard to those two affidavits of john w dorsey i will now call your attention to a statement made by mr bliss on page three o four in his opening speech to you mr dorsey while senator was i think chairman of the committee on post offices and chairman of the subcommittee in charge of all the appropriations that brought him of course directly in connection with the post office department and its officials and gave him as we all understand necessarily from the nature of the case the possession of some exceptional power over officials of the department greater power than a senator would have when occupying some other position That statement was made to you, gentlemen, for the purpose of making you believe that while Senator Dorsey was a member of the Senate, he was also chairman of the post office committee and of the subcommittee having power over the appropriations and that he not only took advantage of being a senator, but by virtue of being chairman of that committee had exceptional power over the officials of the post office department. He was trying to convince you that finding himself chairman of that committee finding himself with this power he thereupon entered into a conspiracy what evidence did the government offer upon that point nothing did mr bliss at that time suppose that mr dorsey was chairman of that committee the records were all here the government had plenty of agents to ascertain what the fact was and yet, without knowing the facts, Mr. Bliss stated to this jury that he believed that. That Dorsey was chairman of the Post Office Committee and of the subcommittee. Wanting to poison your minds with the idea that Mr. Dorsey had taken advantage of having held that position. Now, the only evidence upon that point I find on page thirty nine ninety two, and that is the evidence of Mr. Dorsey himself. He is asked were you a member of the post-office committee in eighteen seventy seven no in eighteen seventy eight no or chairman of the subcommittee? Here is what he says that he had not been on the post-office committee for nearly two years prior to july first eighteen seventy eight And yet, an attorney representing the United States, representing the greatness and honor, the grandeur and glory of fifty millions of people, for the purpose of poisoning your minds, there made that statement without knowing anything about it, or without caring anything about it. I thought I would clear that point up the first thing this morning. Now we will go on with the affidavits you know these terrible affidavits that were sworn to in vermont it was stated that the first affidavit was wrong and that the second affidavit was submitted for the first now if the second affidavit took more money out of the treasury than the first affidavit you might say that there was a sinister motive a dishonest motive in withdrawing the first and substituting the second unless it appeared clearly that the second was true But suppose it turns out that the substitution did not take an extra dollar from the United States. Then what motive do you say they had in doing it? Was it a motive to steal something? Or was it a motive simply to be correct? What other motive could there have been? Now, let us see. The first affidavit said three men and twelve animals. For the expedition, 7 men and 38 animals, and the proportion was exactly 300%, that is, three times as much. Now then, they put in another affidavit. The second affidavit said 2 men and 6 animals, that makes 8, and on the expedited schedule, 6 men and 18 animals, which makes 24, and 3 times 8 are 24, exactly the same. Three times fifteen are forty-five, and three times eight are twenty-four, and the amount of money drawn under the second affidavit is precisely the same that would have been drawn under the first affidavit. Now, do you pretend to tell me that they took the trouble to withdraw the first affidavit and put in the second affidavit because they were trying to defraud somebody? On the contrary, they took that trouble because there was a mistake made in the first affidavit and they wanted to correct it, not for the purpose of getting more money, but for the purpose of getting a correct affidavit. Mr. Crane, foreman of the jury, was not that first affidavit interlined? Mr. Ingersoll. No, sir. If there had been any fraud about it, would they have not withdrawn the paper? They had the right to withdraw it yet they left the paper there they left it there as a witness why because it did not prove anything against them it only proved they desired to be correct my recollection is there were erasures in both affidavits let us find them before i get through i will endeavour to show you that every erasure and interlination is an evidence of honesty instead of dishonesty what are the numbers of these affidavits examining the papers there are number four c and five c route thirty eight one thirty four i will read them hon thomas j brady second assistant postmaster-general sir The number of men and animals necessary to carry the mail on Route 38-134 on the present schedule is three men and twelve animals. The number necessary on the schedule of ten hours, seven times a week, is seven men and thirty-eight animals. Respectfully, John W. Dorsey, Subcontractor. There does not appear to be any erasure or interlineation or anything else in that affidavit. Now here is the other one. Honorable Thomas J. Brady, Second Assistant Postmaster General. Sir, the number of men and animals necessary to carry the mails on Route 38 134 on the present schedule, seven times a week, is two men and six animals. The number necessary on the schedule of ten hours, seven times a week, is six men and eighteen animals. Respectfully, John W. Dorsey, Subcontractor. That is the second affidavit the first was withdrawn that is they had permission to withdraw it and in the second affidavit is the interlineation seven times a week isn't it that is simply an interlineation because there had been an omission to state the service that was then being performed or that was to be performed mr crane foreman of the jury that has puzzled me a good deal to understand the motive of those two affidavits mr ingersoll There certainly could not be any motive for putting in seven or three times a week, for this is simply to make it agree with the truth. If I give a note to a man for $500 and should happen to write in the word hundred and not the word five, and then should take it back and write in the word five above it, that is not a sign of fraud. Will somebody give me number 18K? I just happen to see something there which may be worth something, or may not. Now, gentlemen, here is a petition marked 2A that Rodell swears that the words schedule 13 hours were written in by minor. In one of these papers, I happen to see the word schedule. Just notice the word schedule on this paper, exhibiting it to the jury, and then have the kindness to look at the word schedule in this other one, exhibiting to the jury, and see whether you think one man wrote them both. Rodell says he wrote the word schedule in that one, indicating, and that Minor wrote the word schedule in this other one, indicating. Now, gentlemen, there is another charge against John W. Dorsey on Route thirty-eight, one forty-five, and upon that route he made two affidavits. In the first affidavit he swore it would require three men and seven animals on the schedule, as it then was, and that makes ten that with the proposed schedule, it would take 11 men and 26 animals, making 37. Now, if it took 10 on the schedule as it then was, and 37 on the proposed schedule, then the government, which accepted that affidavit, would have to pay him three times and seven-tenths as much, which is the relation between 10 and 37. The proportion, then, is three and seven-tenths. On the first affidavit, his pay would have been $12,935.52 a year. Now I come to the second affidavit, which said that for the schedule as it then stood, it would take 20 men and animals. On the proposed schedule, he said it would take 12 men and 42 animals, making 54. Now, the ratio of the second affidavit was as 20 is to 54. The ratio in the first affidavit was as 10 is to 37. So that under the second affidavit, which they say was willful and corrupt perjury, he got $8,457 a year instead of $12,935.52 there were three years for the contract to run and a little over under the first affidavit he would have received thirteen thousand nine hundred and ninety two dollars and seventy five cents during the contract term more than he took under the second an affidavit was put in there that he thought was erroneous he withdrew that affidavit and put in a second one if he had allowed the first to remain and they had calculated the amount on the first he would have received $13,992.75 more than he did under the second affidavit. But he withdrew the first and put in the second and took from the treasury $13,992.75 less. And they charge that as a fraud, as an evidence of conspiracy and perjury. Now that is all there is against John W. Dorsey. On page 4090, John W. Dorsey swears that General Miles wanted to know how far apart he, Dorsey, was building the stations on the Tongue River and Bismarck Route. Let us turn to page 4090. You know they were trying to prove that when John W. Dorsey went out there and built the ranches that he was going to build them about 15 or 17 miles apart because it was claimed that they knew there was to be an increase and expedition. You remember that. Now, when John W. Dorsey came upon the stand, he swore that when they went out there, they started to build those stations, I believe, somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 or 35 miles apart, as they could get water. Then he swore that when he went himself over, I think, to Miles City, where General Miles was, that general miles asked him how far he was building his stations apart john w dorsey told him then general miles gave him his advice now i want to read this to you i asked him this question when you got to fort keogh did you go to see general miles answer yes sir Question, did you have any conversation with him in regard to this route, with regards to the needs of the country for mail service, and if so, what was it? Answer, I told him all about the business generally. He seemed to understand it pretty well. He wanted to know how far apart we were building stations, I told him. He wanted to know how often the mails would run, and I told him it would be a weekly service, I thought. We have been pent up here two or three years, he says, with mails from 18 to 20 days apart, reaching us by the way of Ogden and Bozeman. And he says, we can get it in seven or eight days over this line. And now I would like to say that he did not say that he knew there would be an increase, but he said he should like to have it increased to three trips a week or daily and 50 hours time. I told him there was no use to try to get it at all, that it could not be done at present, that nobody knew the distance through that country, that we expected to have it measured, that it was claimed by everybody that it was a good deal more than 250 and probably over 300 miles, and nobody would undertake to carry it, said I. If you extend it, the contractor can throw up his contract, and you will be without any mail, he said. We are going to ask for what we want, but we will take what they will give us. Your stations are too far apart. You can't run any fast times with your stations so far apart. You want more stations and nearer together. The result was that when I went back, I met Mr. Pennell, who had built the stations 30 or 35 miles apart, and going back, we put in intermediate stations. We only carried out lumber enough from Bismarck, to build eight or nine stations, for the windows, etc., we did not think of building any more at that time. Mr. Pennell says the order was to build the stations 17 to 20 miles apart in going out. That is no such thing. There was not a station built going out closer than 30 to 35 miles. Question. What, if anything, did General Miles say that convinced you that you ought to build stations nearer together? then he testifies that on account of what he said he did this and that he had no instructions from washington that is the testimony mr bliss endeavored to frighten the witness by stating in his presence that he bliss did not believe general miles would swear to any such thing judging of course from the conversation that he mr bliss had had with general miles notwithstanding that threat john w dorsey Confident that he was telling the truth, knowing that he was telling the truth, told his story, and the government never brought General Miles to contradict him. Now, the next thing about John W. Dorsey is the conversation that he had with some men in July or August, out on the road, that I have spoken to you about before nothing could be more perfectly improbable it may be that he did tell some man that he was a brother of senator dorsey and perhaps he did say that if he got into a tight place or hard up for money he could borrow money from his brother i do not know what he may have said on that subject But, gentlemen, there is not a man on this jury, not one of you, who has the slightest suspicion that John W. Dorsey at that time told those men substantially that his brother was in a conspiracy with the second assistant postmaster general, and that he, John W. Dorsey, was also a conspirator. There is not one of you who believes that, not one, and you never will. Why not? Because it is so utterly and infinitely unreasonable and absurd now that is the evidence against john w dorsey my attention is called to one other point in his case and so i will call your attention to it mr bliss gentlemen on page 243 in speaking of the two affidavits on the pueblo and rosita route says we find this extraordinary condition of things on Route 38, 134, from Pueblo to Rosita, which I think is the same route upon which the obliging Mr. John W. Dorsey, as I have just stated to you, was allowed to make the affidavit instead of Mr. Minor. Now he goes on to describe these two affidavits, and then he says, Those two affidavits were before Mr. Brady made by John W. Dorsey on the same day, and yet Mr. Brady chose to pick out one or the other of them and say, I believe that as the absolutely conclusive statement of the number of men and animals that are now in use upon the route, and upon that affidavit I will make my order, taking from the treasury thousands of dollars of money. You will see that the first affidavit made the number two men and six animals, making eight as the number of stock and carriers, then in use, but the other one called for three men and twelve animals, making fifteen as the number then in use, and therefore, according as he accepted one or the other by the rule of three, to which I called your attention just now, there would be twice the amount of money allowed from the treasury under the one affidavit that there would be under the other just think of that gentlemen the number of men and animals then in use has nothing to do with the number of men and animals stated in the other affidavit those amounts bear no relation to each other the number of men and animals in use in the first affidavit and the number that would be necessary on the next schedule do bear a relation to each other the number of men and animals on the second affidavit on the then schedule bears relation to the proposed number on the proposed schedule and not to the number on the other affidavit and yet mr bliss stood right here before you with those two affidavits that would take the same amount of money out of the treasury to a fraction precisely the same not the difference of a billionth part of a farthing "'and stated to you that one would take twice as much money from the treasury as the other. "'You will think that he is as defective in mathematics as in law. "'I say to you now that the amount that would be taken out of the treasury "'on those two affidavits is precisely the same. "'I did not think that anybody could excel Mr. Kerr in mathematics, "'but Mr. Bliss bears off the poem.' "'He bears off the palm even in misstatement "'and bears off the palm in mistake. "'The two affidavits would call for the same amount of money precisely, "'and yet Mr. Bliss stands up before you "'and says there is twice as much on one as the other. "'Now what is that for?' "'That is to prejudice you. "'That is all. "'Gentlemen, you saw John W. Dorsey. "'You heard his testimony. "'You know whether he is a man to be believed?' It is for you to judge whether he is honest or dishonest, and I leave his testimony with you. It was direct, it was to the point, and his manner on the stand was absolutely and perfectly honest. This ends Chapter 4, Part 20 of 24.